Let me share one little incident. You may have heard me talk about it before, but it's worth saying again. I was 16 years old. This was six years before I became a Christian. I found myself at the back of a dance hall with a gorgeous 16-year-old girl in the semi-dark lying in long grass, and my intentions were not honorable. And she said something to me that put the fear of God in me. She wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. But as we lay there in that long grass, she just said this. You know what? God's watching us. And that was like a bucket of water coming from the heavens. And I just said, let's go back inside. And I look back and I say, thank God for the fear of God that fell on my heart as a non-Christian. Because that stopped me making a terrible mistake. I could have brought shame to her family because it was shameful to get pregnant in those days. I could have brought shame to my family. I could have married someone I didn't love. I could have instigated an abortion. I didn't know what the issues were about. So through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So as Christians, you and I should cultivate the fear of God in our own heart, and we should try and put the fear of God on the hearts of those to whom we're speaking. Do you guys realize that everything that has been made has a maker behind it? I would love to meet the person who invented Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Hasbro. How does that process even start? He was hallucinating. I want to take potato and you put stuff on potato. What makes you think he was Lebanese? (laughs) (laughs) He had to have been. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. But guys, we're there... Things like that growing up that you just loved, or like well, there's or a, board games or there's games. Guy named or, stretched. I don't remember. Uh, Super Stretch you know Armstrong. What? I was thinking of that and I couldn't remember what it Super was. Super Stretch Armstrong. I, I had what it was. That might oh, be it. amazing. It definitely was it. Yeah, I, you uh, just, I can't be it. Stretch. Oh, <laughs> um, but but games. You guys ever play Telestrations? No. Yes. Oh, that's one of the best games. Starts Do you know out. that the guy who created the Hot Pocket is like one of the wiestiest dudes in, in like Orange County? No. He sold Hot Pockets. What's there to like, a Hot Pocket? That's my point. With, uh, it's basically just a frozen calzone. It. Yeah. But he put the little wrapper around it and sold millions. Well, I thought you meant pocket warmers. We had them in uh, Green Packers in the middle of winter. <laughs> we had these pocket warmers. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a Hot Pocket. Oh, and you guys went watch, oh, that's right. You and Mark went and watched the Green Bay Packers. It was the freezingest oh, yeah. I've ever been. If it's such Mark, a word how do they play freezing. in weather like that? Seriously. They, they have feet and they run. They have hands. They catch the ball. <laughs> I'll tell you how. That's like $30 million dollars a year. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it for Quite you. Quite incentive. Yeah. Ray, when you were growing up as an orphan, did you guys... <laughs> did you, you have any I've games never had anyone orphanage? asked that I grew up, or thank you, easy. <laughs> any games, Ray? Board games you grew up playing? Um, as a sheep herder, how did you pass time? Yeah. <laughs> no, I used to build huts and trees. That's what I loved doing. We did, you, to... did you Did you guys have... I wonder how long it's been around. Do you guys remember... Um, was it called the Operation? Oh, yeah. Yes. That That's was one of my favorites. Yeah, that was good. You had that as a kid, right? Yes, yeah. Well, oh, I had it for our kids. We had Monopoly also. And the nose would go red and yes. stuff. Monopoly. Um, Hungry Hungry Hippo. That was one of my favorites. I love that. That's what really do you play nostalgic. with the kids? We play Telestrations. We'll do Taboo, Catchphrase, Scrabble. I yeah. love Scrabble. Monopoly. Exploding Kitten. <laughs> that, oh, it's so kid. fun. Wait, are you yeah. serious? Or Taco, Cat, Goat, Cheese, That's pizza. a game? Yeah. Those two are great oh, games. Funny. It really is? That's real life. They're put out by Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I can't yeah. imagine. All right, friends, enough messing around. We told you on part one of the uh, Ambassadors Academy Q&A that we'll have a part two, and here it is. The adventure continues. Uh, guys, how sweet was it to 
meet people face to face whose lives had been changed by the ministry. Amazing. Right? Isn't that one of your favorite yeah, times, right? It's my Academy? favorite times here when I get to meet people. Yeah. And included friends in the Academy is a tour of Living Waters. You get to come and see where we do the Living Waters podcast, uh, where we record things for the television program, where we do what we do. So that's all part of it. Again, a reminder to, to make sure to check it out. People so, were really fascinated with Mark's nap room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's where Mark lives. But friends, uh, we're going to pick it up with part two. We'll be back on the other end. I got a really cool comment and a resource to encourage you to check out. Here we go. Okay, we have a question over here. Just uh, Yeah, my name is Juan Garcia, and I'm from Texas. Uh, my question was, uh, or my question is, uh, how we all go about telling believers about the sinner's prayer is really not a good idea. Go for it, Ray. Yeah, I used the sinner's prayer as a new Christian. I led 28 of my surfing buddies to the Lord. One, two, three, four, say this prayer and you'll get what I've got. And it didn't work. And 27 so-called backslid. They didn't actually backslide. They didn't slide forward in the first place. They were false converts, but they became very bitter. And I did a great disservice. And I think the sinner's prayer is a tradition that's held on to like the traditions of the Pharisees. If you say to someone, they say, close the deal. Why? People are angry on the Facebook page. Why didn't you close the deal? It was because I'm not the deal maker. God's the one that saves people. I don't close any deal. When my children were born, I had nothing to do. I just planted the seed and he did the rest and we got a kid that came out. And that's exactly what happens when someone's born of God. God does all the work himself and I don't want to mess it up like I did as a Christian, a zeal without knowledge. Um, I think Modern evangelism is a little like Peter with a zeal without knowledge, with a sword, taking that sword and slicing off someone's ear. If you want to slice off someone's ear, lead them in a false conversion, and they'll, their latter end will be worse than the first. Their ears will be closed to the gospel because of that zeal without knowledge. So we need to look at Scripture and say what happened in Scripture and follow the, the biblical precedent. We live in a time where we are so used to instant gratification, our cell phones make it so that we can have that serotonin hit whenever we want by just going on there and jumping on social media. And we often bring that into discipleship. We want instant gratification. We want that hit right away. And so that's where the sinner's prayer helps with that. But as we talked about yesterday, evangelism and discipleship is a long game. It takes time for you to invest in people. And so I think to raise point that the sinner's prayer just disrupts what God wants for us to do with that person who's saying yes. If they're saying yes, man, okay, sure, pray for them, and then invite them to church and start the discipleship process. I'll also say this, right? The question is asked, how many people have you led to the Lord? All of them. And what God does with them at that point is up to him. We want to point people to the Lord. This illustration is from one of you. I don't remember which. Probably from you, Ray. If it's good, I'll take credit. It's the whole idea of, first you say, where in Scripture do you see a sinner's prayer laid out? Right? We don't see it. Charles Finney coined it way back when. What we also don't see is an illustration of an individual who, imagine your buddy has committed adultery with his wife. Whose illustration is this? Is this you? No, I think it's Ray. Oh, well, well it depends on which one. Go ahead. The couch? Which which. <laughs> So your, your, your buddy committed adultery, goes before you and says, hey, I, I messed up. What do I do? He said, well, bro, listen, go back to your wife and tell her that you messed up. He says, well, would you go with me? Wait, to your wife? 
yeah, I, I don't know what to say to her. Okay. So you go back to the door. He knocks on the door. You're around the side. She answers the door, and she says, what do you want? And you look over at, they look at you around the corner, and you say, well, just repeat this after me. I'm so sorry for what I've done. Honey, I'm so sorry for what I've done. You'll never do it again. I will never do it again. What else? Right? Your wife is not interested in what he has to say. She wants you to pour your heart out. Same as so when you're out on the street and somebody wants to get right with God and say, I want to get right with God, what do I do? And I go, well, you need to tell him that. You need to confess your sins to him. You need to pour your heart out to him. What, What did King David say in Psalm 51, right? To you, was it? Yeah. Have mercy against you upon and me, you God. alone. Against right? you and you alone have I sinned and others evil in your sight. Yeah, to you and you alone. So that's what you need to do. You need to go to him. You need to go to God. You need to pour your heart out. Do that. You don't need me. You don't need my help. It's not some magical prayer that is repeated. God's not interested in that. And I know that Pastor Philip was nudging me. He wanted to say something. I mean, I, look, Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? And Paul helped and said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So there's a place for you and I instructing, schooling someone in what it means to put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's one thing. And I think it will be different from soul to soul, sinner to sinner. The problem with the sinner's prayer gets formulaic. The problem with the sinner's prayer is, you know, often either on television or you watch mass evangelism events, when, when that is repeated, and now you're saved. And I think Mark hinted at this. Our job is to get out of the way, not get in the way. And sometimes, too, the use of it becomes very priestly, as if we're some intermediary for the, the, the sinner. So, you know, in and of itself, it can be a tool. But when it becomes formulaic, when it gets in the way, and, and it also, too, hinders someone expressing. I want, you know, I want to see when someone express the sorrow of their heart. I want to hear them talk about the brokenness and their sin and the glory of the Savior, and I want them to articulate a basic understanding of the cross and the atonement and substitution of Christ. And again, I'm not saying that that God can't use that. He's sovereign and can use anything. But the formulaic part of it bothers me, and, and, and it, it, it can get in the way we're almost putting words in people's mouths rather than words coming out of the heart. You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. With the heart, one believes, and with the mouth, one confesses, Romans 10. And the danger with the formula or the set card is you may be putting words in people's mouths that have not really coming from their heart. And that's why in the case of a lot of mass evangelism, you, you go and do the follow-up six months later, three months later, and a great percentage of those people are not to be found. They're not in local churches. And, you know, the, the parable of the sower and the seed kind of teaches us that. We should expect some of that. And again, the danger is they put their trust in what they have said rather than the Savior who has said, come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Stacy had a question back here. Thank you, Mark. I didn't have a question. I had a statement. I went to, you could say, funerals or celebrations of life, like a dozen this year. And I, um, one of them was my husband's. And so during this process, I'm looking at my life, and I see that people are dying, and God can use us. When I go out and witness, 
I tell people after I do the good person test and give the the gospel message, I say, we are not guaranteed promise tomorrow and that you don't, we don't know when we're going to die. And so this last year I lived it. I looked at it different, but even though my husband was gone, I wanted him back. I didn't care. I would take him out of heaven and bring him home. But the thing is, is there's every one of us here that have Jesus. That's take the way of the master to our church and teach them how to witness. Because we have Jesus and we're all of us are going to lose someone, but we have Jesus and can get through it as we lean on Jesus. But those people, they will resort to drugs, alcohol, or suicide. So what are we going to do about that? We got to give them Jesus. So God bless you, Stacy. Lane, what do you got? Hello, brothers. How are you doing? Good. I'm Jacob. So I have a question about the position of evangelist. That's where we're going. So I want to return to something that you said, Easy. You were talking about how you hope that there comes a day when you work yourself out of the need to do this work. I would presuppose that part of the problem is that the work of the evangelist, I would even say the position of the evangelist has been pushed out of the local church to the parachurch. So that's where I'm going. So for example, myself, I get to work with a number of guys in the Texas area, and we do the work of an evangelist, and we go to great churches, churches that do exegetical preaching, and so they have teachers and administrators and counselors and pastors, and they're wonderful churches. But what we long for is the day when on that list there would also be evangelists. Evangelists, not, not the negative connotation of the word evangelist, like biblically defined, solid evangelists who exhort one another to preach the gospel clearly and boldly and then train up God's people to do the same. So the question to you guys is, how would you make the case for the position of evangelist in the local church? What advice would you give? Well, I think you and I talked about this earlier a little bit. I mean, I haven't thought it through to a clear conclusion, but there seems to be more than a hint of something in Ephesians 4, right? He gave pastor teachers and, and evangelists, uh, apostles and prophets, I believe, are in the foundation. Those are not offices for today. So I don't believe there's apostles or prophets today in, in the classic sense of that. But there may be ongoing office or ministry of evangelist uh, and, and pastor teacher. When I think of spiritual gifts, I think it's interesting. Someone has a spiritual gift of mercy, but doesn't mean other Christians shouldn't be merciful. Some, some Christians have the spiritual gift of teaching, doesn't mean that others shouldn't teach the Word of God. And I think it's somewhat the same. Some people in our local churches may have a gift or a, a, a calling, a burden, an effectiveness in evangelism where they, they're the cream that rises to the top. And, and I think the church has got to get a hold of that. And, and I think you and I talked, I think one, a, a position we're looking at adding to our pastoral staff here, where they either be a pastor of evangelism, pastor of missions, a pastor of outreach, we're not sure what title to give that, but someone where that's their bread and butter, that's their passion, and their job is to both model it, do it, and equip the saints to do it. Uh, we're thankful for these guys. They're, they're partly doing that with us and our people. The thing I'm trying to think through, and I think a, a lot of theologians and commentators would argue, was the New Testament evangelist more of a church planter? Well, because evangelism in the New Testament, for the most part, was never divorced from the planting of churches. And so I'm trying to think that through. Is the evangelist that church planter who does, you know, virgin frontier evangelism, but once 
God has sovereignly saved people. They're baptized, discipled, and, and a church should be formed. You see the apostles, they went everywhere in Acts 14 and, and appointed elders in every city. So that's the goal of evangelism. It's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we tend to think of the Billy Grahams and the, and the Greg Glories as evangelists. I'm not saying that there's not some truth to that, but for here at Kindred, if, we, if we're going to try and establish that, Ephesians 4, it'll probably more be like someone on our pastoral staff with giftedness and effectiveness in that area who's working out from among us, being involved in church planting or encouraging our people to church plant and maybe being involved in missions across the world again, either coming alongside small churches, establishing elders, deacons, helping them develop. But I'm not sure the last word has been said, and I give you a couple of authors I think deal with that, but I want to do more thinking, and I think the church needs to do more thinking about what is meant there in Ephesians 4, the evangelist. Because 2 Timothy 4 tells me I've got to do the work of an evangelist as a pastor. There's something there in Ephesians 4 that's it's a select group, and more likely church planters, evangelizing to establish local churches. And so such a challenge in whatever you're doing in evangelism, try and tie it in to a local church or do it from out of a local church. Yeah, you know, Second Corinthians 5 makes it clear that we're called to be ambassadors for Christ and that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, when you look at Ephesians 4, one of the things it says, he, he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And I believe one of the main roles of the evangelist is the equipping of the saints for that work of ministry, which is being his ambassadors in this world. And so I would absolutely love to see that happening in churches where even the title evangelist is used. You know, I think it would bring attention to it. And, and the primary role of that evangelist is to, of course, they, they do, I think, have a distinct gift in proclaiming the gospel, but I think more than anything, they're distinctly equipped to equip others to proclaim the gospel. We had a, a couple of brothers come to our ministry years ago, and to say that was something they were burdened about trying to do with churches, to, to approach them on trying to get that established in every church, I think we would see massive revival, if it's done right. Yeah, I think the gift of the evangelists is for the, the church, Big C, has been neglected. Let me just share a little bit about New Zealand, where I'm from. Four million people, 40 million sheep. Not sure of the exact amount of sheep, because the guy that counts them keeps falling to sleep. Um, thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, but we're, we're a sheep country, a lot of sheep, and they have sheep trials. That's not like an O.J. Simpson trial. They, they have, like, in the, who's seen the movie Babe? Okay, that's, they, they have these farmers, they've got to get five sheep through a little sheep gate, and they've got these sheep dogs that help them do it. And I remember once I was with a pastor having dinner with him one night, he went out to get a, an orange drink, and I was watching these sheep trials, and this poor farmer was standing there, and he had to get five sheep through this little sheep gate. And he was standing holding onto his staff, and one wrong move from him, and those sheep were going to scatter. And suddenly, and I, I called the pastor, I said, Pastor, look at this poor pastor trying to get his sheep involved in evangelism. One wrong move and he's going to scatter the sheep. And he said, well, where's the evangelist? And suddenly this dog came out of nowhere, went, and these sheep just went straight through the gutter, says, there's the evangelist. (laughs) And that's been my role for many years. For 30 years, I've gone around different churches within the body of Christ, and I've been able to bark at the sheep. The shepherd couldn't do it because he would scatter the sheep. If she said, you reproduce after your own kind, I want to get out. They're going to leave. 
because he's making them feel uncomfortable. But I can come in as the sheepdog, and if you ever see a sheepdog, he loves what he's doing. A border collie will run across the back of sheep that are corralled. The sheep go with their front legs and try and defy him. He'll just bark at them and terrify them. They do exactly what he says. They can round up 3,000 sheep by themselves in about two minutes. They're just gifted for that task. And so I go into a local church. The pastor's got the authority. He's got that staff, but he's going to scatter the sheep. So what does he do? He calls in the sheepdog. I bark at the sheep. And I say things like, Spurgeon said, have you no wish for others to be saved? You're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. And I don't care what they think because I'm leaving tomorrow. (laughs) So I think that's what's missing. That's what's missing within the body of Christ. The evangelist who's there for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And uh, if, we're, if we're not equipped, we're going to be fearful in warfare. If you go into a heat of modern warfare without weapons you're confident in, you're going to be fearful. But if you're issued with state-of-the-art weapons, which the evangelists can tell you about, these weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God are pulling on strongholds, you're going to have courage and go out and do what you should as Christians. Hey, listener, have you ever imagined yourself having a box of goodies for you to give away to every friend, loved one, non-believer that crosses your path? Well, now you can get one. That's because Living Waters is giving away 10 free boxes of goodies every single week. That's eight in the USA and two overseas. And this is being made possible by a faithful partner of ours that has given us funds to make these resources available to you for free. Each of these boxes has $100. That's right, $100 worth of tracks, books, and even your very own podcast mug. Go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast, fill out the form, and then listen to the end of the episodes where we will be announcing our winners. Livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. Good luck. My name is Daniel. I'm from Texas. Hey, Daniel. And I actually got saved through um, hearing Ray preach. And so uh, I've been, you know, extremely blessed by Living Waters. And, you know, immediately after, you know, getting saved, you know, Ray Comfort barks, you know, the fear of God all the time. And so my question is, how would a new believer or a believer in general just increase their fear of God, especially at times when, you know, in seasons where they feel like they don't fear God at all, although they should and have to. Amen. Um, I think just study the nature and character of God revealed in Scripture. Study Mount Sinai when God came in peace, like I mentioned earlier on. Israel were terrified. Study how he killed a husband and wife because they told one lie. Study how in Genesis 38 he killed a man because he didn't like what he did sexually. That puts the fear of God in you when you realize the Bible is the revelation of God's character and nature and the one that we face on Judgment Day. You know, Jesus said, Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear him. Now, we read that scripture and think, that's nice, but think of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Fear not him who has power to kill your body. Someone breaks into your room. In the middle of the night, you look up and they've got a knife and they're going to plunge that knife into your chest as you lie in bed. We couldn't imagine the terror that would fill your heart. But Jesus said, don't fear him. Don't fear him who can kill your body. But fear him who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. In other words, that scenario is nothing to falling into the hands of the living God. 
That should put the fear of God in us. That should help us stop our wandering eye, that that love of sin that we have. The Bible says, through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And I thank God for his fear. Let me share one little incident. You may have heard me talk about it before, but it's worth saying again. I was 16 years old. This was six years before I became a Christian. I found myself at the back of a dance hall with a gorgeous 16-year-old girl in the semi-dark lying in long grass, and my intentions were not honorable. And she said something to me that put the fear of God in me. She wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. But as we lay there in that long grass, she just said this. You know what? God's watching us. And that was like a bucket of water coming from the heavens. And I just said, let's go back inside. And I look back and I say, thank God for the fear of God that fell on my heart as a non-Christian. Because that stopped me making a terrible mistake. I could have brought shame to her family because it was shameful to get pregnant in those days. I could have brought shame to my family. I could have married someone I didn't love. I could have instigated an abortion. I didn't know what the issues were about. So through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So as Christians, you and I should cultivate the fear of God in our own heart, and we should try and put the fear of God on the hearts of those to whom we're speaking because we want them to get a right understanding of God is to be feared and so that they'll depart from evil because, believe me, sinners love the darkness. They love their darling sins. And the only way they'll let them go is if they see the end of sin is death and damnation. And when they believe that, they'll let them go. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom comes from knowing God. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, chapter 2 He talks about the nature of getting to know God. And he starts by saying, think about somebody getting to know a horse. They might need two or three hours to figure out the tendencies of that horse and they got it. It's done. They know that horse. Think about somebody getting to know a house. They need to walk through the house and observe it for a little bit. They're done. They got it. They know the house. Think about somebody getting to know a person. Okay. Now a person is a little bit more complex than a horse or a house. Hopefully getting to know a person takes time. It takes asking questions and getting to know a person, J.R. Packer points out that it also requires them the desire to reveal themselves to you. They have to be interested in you getting to know who they are. Now think about getting to know God. First off, the good news is that God desires to reveal himself to us. But if it is difficult and it is hard and it takes time to get to know a person, then it's also time that it takes. It takes investment. It takes meditation and prayer and saturating yourself in the word of God to get to know who God is. And that is our calling as Christians is to know God. And the more we know him, the more fear that we'll develop. And the nature about fearing God, I think, comes perfectly in in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, when I can't remember who it is, But she asks, she's about to meet the lion, and she asks, is he dangerous? And the response is, maybe, no, no, no. She says, is he dangerous? And he goes, yes, he's very dangerous, but he is good. Or maybe it is safe. Yes, is he safe? No, he is not safe. I accept your apology. I apologize. It's safe. You haven't even read it either. It's safe. This is more like a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, now we're doing it. Anyways, the response is yes. He is is not safe. He is dangerous, but he is also good. And as we get to know God, we know that he is dangerous and we know that he is good. I think we've got to kind of meditate on the idea of weariness 
If you read David Wells, he talks about the weightlessness of God on the modern evangelical church. The word glory in the Old Testament, kavod in, in the Hebrew means weight, heavy. And I think we've lost that. There's not a weightiness to church worship. There's not a weightiness to biblical exposition. There's not a weightiness to the books we read. And so I think we can help regain and retain the fear of God by starting in some of those areas. I mean, no one enjoys celebratory worship more than me, but it can be overdone. Where's those moments of silence and reverence that I grew up with? Where's the pastors calling people to reflection within the service? Where's the the, the preaching on hell and, and, and the doctrine of sin and the awfulness of God? Where is that thought, you know, that I grew up with? I'm not saying the practice is right, but I love the thought. My father would even reprimanded me if I put God's word on the floor of the church. Looking back, I don't think that's, he's got no biblical justification. But I love the sentiment behind it, that, that sacredness. It's a holy book. It's different from any other book. Treat it that way. This is the Lord's day. Treat it differently. Don't leave church and just slink away into a sports event. Go home and pray and meditate. Read the old writers. You know, I remember when I came to this church in my early ministry, several people criticized me, and one girl accosted me one day, why do you keep quoting these dead guys? Because, and I said, because they're better than anybody alive. And that, that going back to the Puritans and the Reformers and reading the depth of their thinking and reflection on the, on the character and glory of God. We've, we've lost that. I love joy. I love how, these guys know me. I love having fun. But, well, you know, let's retain and let's regain some of that reverence, that, that weightiness uh, that, that we've lost. Because at the end of the day, that's tied into the glory of God. COVID, weighty. And there's a weightlessness in the church. You know, if there's a word that's overdone in the evangelical church in America, it's the word fun. And so let's get back to that. There's a balance in that, but I think there's an imbalance on just a reverence and a weightiness about the things of God. And anything we can do in the songs we choose, the, the tenor or the mood of the music, reverence, knowing when there, you know, there's a time for fun, there's a time for frivolity, and there's a time for, you know, being serious and you look back and, you know, you can criticize it. When you look back at the photos of those old Puritans, there was a sternness to them that you could be critical of, but maybe there was something behind that sternness. You know what? I mean, I, I remember actually in a private conversation, not a private conversation, a conversation with John MacArthur. He's, he's famous for a sermon he did on the will of God. Uh, he's preached it many, many times. And I remember listening to a version of it 20 years ago, and John was very... You know, there was a little bit more joking in it. There was a, there was a speed and an enthusiasm to it. Listen to it some years later. And there was a solemnity and a weightiness to it. And I remember bringing that kind of up. And, and John said something like, the old I become, the less I, the less I have to laugh about. Now you, you could go, well, you know, has he become a curmudgeon or something? No, maybe, maybe it's a reflection. But the longer you live and the more you're exposed to the weight of sin and, and where our culture's going and the clouds that are gathering and the judgment that's coming, you know what? Maybe we need to cut back a little on the frivolity and the joking and, and let's, you know, multiply the, the weightiness and the reverence. Amen. You know, I would say that the fear of God is cultivated most effectively in the soil of understanding the holiness of God. 
When you look at Isaiah 6 and those seraphim were flying, covering their eyes, their feet, and, and you know, we're, we're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah said he became undone. Woe is me. And he recognized, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And if you've never listened to the video series or watched the video series by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God, <laughs> you've got to do that. When you contemplate who God is in his holiness, it, it opens your eyes to your lack of holiness and, and it awakens in you that, that awe and reverence toward the Lord and it begins to transform you. And hopefully that should lead you to deeper intimacy. Like we've heard said, you've got to get to know who the Lord is. I love the saying that says, every new thing learned about God is a new reason for loving him and a new reason for fearing him and, and walking in that sobriety. And so I think we're, we're done. We're, we're close to 550 now. And what great questions, what, what a great time this has been. And, you know, look, the, the, I, let me just close with this little story. One of the biggest reasons why man failed to fear God is because often man thinks that he is God. That's the day and age we're living in today. I mean, right? You, you listen to the mantras that are going around, and that's typically what it comes down to. A number of years ago, Ray and I were preaching open air in Santa Monica, and this guy comes up, and he began to proclaim himself to be God. And this guy had this deep, deep booming voice. And he began to speak with like these prophetic utterances with old English jargon. I am the Lord thy God. I mean, we're convinced most of the earthquakes in California were caused by this guy's voice. And right in the midst of his tirade, Ray asked him this real simple question. What's your name? And this guy, without skipping a beat, I am the Lord thy God. What's your name? Larry. I should at least go for Lawrence, you know, that sounds a little more reverent. But that shows the folly of man, and that's the day and age in the midst of which we're living. And so let, let us cultivate the fear of God in our lives by meditating on his holiness. And any apologies, apologies any Larrys here today. <laughs> hey, we, Larry. We love you, Larry. Larry, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, this has been an absolute joy and delight. We're going to be around here for the duration of the entire academy, so make sure to, to please talk to us. And if you have any complaints whatsoever, please write them down on a $100 bill and give them to me. And there you have it. I really felt like we could have gone another hour or two. It did go by quick. It certainly did. Yeah, it really did. It was such a thrill and a joy. Again, friends, that other gentleman you heard on there was Pastor Philip DeCourcy, mine and Mark's pastor at uh, Kindred Community Church in Anaheim Hills, California. Come and check it out if you're ever in the area. And uh, here is a wonderful comment that we got says, helpful encouragement in the midst of darkness. Hello, friends, as Easy always says. I wanted to thank you all so much for all of your encouragement on this podcast. My mom and I listen to it all the time and have really been blessed by all the wisdom shared in here, intermingling with large amounts of silliness and humor. But in all seriousness, this podcast has very much ministered to my soul as I am in the midst of the most heated battle with sin in my life. You guys releasing episodes on repentance and selfishness have really been helping me be aware of the wickedness that is yet clinging to my heart. But as I fix my eyes on Christ crucified, it cannot but be washed away by his blood, his blood ever cleansing me and ever reminding me of his immense love for me. Such a love far beyond the bounds of my understanding cannot but cause me to flee sin and pursue righteousness. 
because him having loved me first has spurred in me a passionate love for him. This not of me, but of him. Thank you guys so much for your encouragement and reminders to look to Jesus, our glory and our prize. Soli Dio Gloria, your friend and sister, Emily. Wow, Emily, thank (laughs) you for that. There I go again. This just means so much. We can't put into words how much this means that you guys are listening and that this is impacting you. So please send in your comments on the platform and give us a rating. And then again, if you have any other things you wanna say to us, you can also go to podcastatlivingwaters.com. Hey, make sure to check out Why Christianity? Solving Life's Most Important Questions booklet. Ray, this has sold a lot. Yes, over a million, 200,000 or something like that. Yeah, it's just wonderful. I think so. So check that out. And the Evidence Bible at livingwaters.com. There you have it, friends. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time here on the Living Waters podcast. No. Podcast. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I have no idea where that ridiculous saying came from, but friends, we do have winners. Winners for the podcast giveaway. That is the Living Waters podcast. We have Angela from Yucca Valley, California. Yvonne from Crestline, California. Brooke from Clayton, North Carolina. Andrea from Anderson, Indiana. Elias from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Becca from Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. Lowell from Yakima, Washington. Don from Charleston, Illinois. John from Ford, Australia. Good on you, Mike. And Dave from Willen Lane, United Kingdom. Congrats.